when I grew up, I wanted to be a farmer. Absolutely true. Not only that, but I actually did farm for several years. But now I am the executive director of the USC Shoah Foundation and the UNESCO chair on genocide education. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stephen D. Smith. Stephen is an adjunct professor of religion at the University of Southern California and the executive director of the USC Shoah Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to making audiovisual interviews with survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and other genocides, a compelling voice for education and action. He also holds the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Education. A theologian by training, Stephen founded the UK Holocaust Center in Nottinghamshire, England, and co-founded the Aegis Trust for the Prevention of Crimes Against Humanity and Genocide. He was also the inaugural chairman of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, which runs the National Holocaust Memorial Day in the United Kingdom. Stephen was the project director responsible for the creation of the Kigali Genocide Memorial Center in Rwanda and trustee of the South Africa Holocaust and Genocide Foundation. In recognition of his work, Stephen has become a member of the Order of the British Empire and received the Interfaith Gold Medallion. He also holds two honorary degrees, Honorary Doctor of Letters from Nottingham Trent University and Honorary Doctor of Laws from University of Leicester. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Stephen. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. First off, we'll start by asking, what is it like being interviewed for a job by Steven Spielberg, who started the Shoah Foundation in 94? And what, what is it like having him as a boss? Well, actually, it was quite a surreal experience, as you can imagine. I, I came to Southern California from Nottinghamshire, England, which, of course, is the place where Sherwood Forest is, um, to this you know, huge metropolis of uh, Los Angeles, Ben. And, um, and, you know, I was going through my interview process. And a part of that was to be, you know, have a conversation with Steven Spielberg. Um, I can tell you that um, what's most remarkable about him is, first of all, he's very disarming because he is a true gentleman. I've now worked with him for over 12 years and can tell you that uh, really true gentleman. Secondly, um, we share so much in common, you know, so many interests that uh, I can't say I have um, any proficiency whatsoever in filmmaking. But when it came to documenting the lives of the survivors of the Holocaust and the witnesses to genocide, uh, Stephen and I share, you know, a lot in common and we had a lot to talk about and continue to do so to this day. And I think what a lot of people might be curious about is, you know, you get this position of executive director, which sounds awesome, but what is it exactly that an executive director does? To a layperson like me, I, I'm not really, what, what, what is the day in and day out look like for the executive director of a nonprofit? Well, I guess, you, you know, the executive director role is like the CEO of a corporation in a way. You, you're, you're doing um, a lot of everything um, and responsible for everything. Um, but mostly, um, I think, thinking about the strategy of the organization, where that organization is going to go over a period of time and how you're going to take it there. Um, one of the things that I found really uh, interesting about this particular role is that the USC Shoah Foundation started as a not-for-profit, as an independent not-for-profit, which was founded by Steven Spielberg and the trustees of the original 501c3. 
And then in 2005, an agreement was reached with the University of Southern California to incorporate the Shoah Foundation into the university. So essentially, we're an organization within an organization. Um, the fiduciary board of the Shoah Foundation are the trustees of the university. And yet you have this fully functioning um, institute, actually, we are at the University of Southern California, which operates like a not-for-profit reporting to the university. So my boss is a dean. Um, mm. And uh, my board of counselors are actually um, independent lay people who volunteer their time on an advisory board. We call our board of counselors. And while they don't have fiduciary responsibility, they act just like a real board. And so we have this very interesting slightly complex um, situation by which I'm reporting to the university, but also have donors who have nothing to do with the university and obviously giving money for the cause of the Shoah Foundation, which is to develop empathy, understanding and respect through sharing the testimonies that we have in the in the archive. Before we get to the testimonies, I want to acknowledge this this organization within an organization because I find it very interesting. Nonprofits in general, you're always competing against other very noble causes. And in, in the case of a nonprofit within USC, you might even be in competition for donors with the deans that, that you, you collaborate with so closely, right? So, for example, the film school is going to donors uh, looking for contributions and uh, the School of Letters, Arts and Sciences, and, and you're collaborating at the same time. As somebody who's leading a nonprofit, how do you go about making the, the case for your cause specifically? Well, that's a very interesting point, Ben, because you're absolutely right. The University of Southern California is seeking donations as a 501c3 to support many, many programs. Some of them might be capital programs like building a new building or a theater or a soundstage, if you say the cinema school. Um, those causes might be supporting, uh, for example, a scholarship or an endowment. So um, it might be, for example, you have um, an, an, alum, an alum of USC who um, is very interested in supporting the school that they were previously a part of and will give money to that, but also might be interested in the work of the Shoah Foundation because they have heritage linked to that uh, experience, or maybe they like the humanitarian aspect of the work or the educational aspect of the work. So it's quite possible for two entities at USC um, to share, um, it's quite possible for two entities at USC to share different um, uh, donors and supporters. Um, but you, you're right to intuit that actually sometimes that can be competitive. So we have to work out with our colleagues, okay, how are we gonna play nice? How are we gonna work together? How do we make sure that you get your slice of the, uh, of the cake here and we get our slice of the cake there and understand that donors do have the ability to give to two completely different things within one school, uh, you know, right. within one entity. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it requires actually systems. Uh, you might be surprised to know that actually we have a system for it at USC. So if I am going to be approaching a particular donor, I, I put that information into a system-wide database so that if somebody else comes along and is going to approach that same person uh, for something different, they already know and it's already flagged that I have that interest. And then, uh, you know, when things are working correctly, we call each other and talk through it and say, okay, well, I've got this interest and you've got that interest and how do we you know, manage that for the best, for the benefit of the donor? And that's how we go about it. One of the main causes that, that you raise money for is, is continuing the education around the Holocaust and around other genocides. And 
I, I, what I think is so fascinating about the Shoah Foundation particularly is it would have been enough just to say that you have the largest archive of Holocaust testimony. You could have called it a day. You could have said, great, we have all these hours of footage of Holocaust survivors telling us their story. But what you've done is you've embraced storytelling in a really innovative way. And, you know, whether it's with The Last Goodbye, which is the award-winning virtual reality film that you, that you produced where you capture viewers inside a Nazi death camp or whether it was partnering with Fox Searchlight Pictures to launch the Jojo Rabbit Education Initiative where you're, you're getting a classroom curriculum in partnership with the, with the movie. You know, I think you've done such an innovative job of embracing storytelling and really bringing us into the 21st century. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've taken this this next step and gone beyond just you know the 2D footage that we might have watched in school 10 or 20 years ago, and now you've you've brought it to the present day and beyond. Well, Ben, I'm very interested in the way in which we all tell our stories, whether we are a you know a survivor of a violent crime like genocide, or whether um, we're you know ordinary people going about our daily lives. Everybody has a story to tell. What's fascinating about the survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and genocide is that their, their stories are right on the extreme of human experience. Things that none of us would ever want to uh, even think happened, um, happened to them and you know, smashed through their lives and destroyed them. And so it's, it's not a um, pretty subject to be close to on a daily basis. However, one of the things that I find is that despite the horror in these stories, there is such an amazing um, you know, wonder of humanity there. I, I often refer to this as being like exploring deep ocean. The deeper you go, um, the more forbidding it becomes, the darker it becomes, the more highly pressurized it becomes. It's uninhabitable for human uh, existence. And yet when you get to the bottom of this deep ocean and you turn on the lights, what you find is this whole universe of life that um, exists there. And it's a little like that. You're in this dark and forbidding place. And yet there you find signs of life that you would never imagine. The resilience and the tenacity and the ability to live through those experiences. So for me, the storytelling is not about what happened 75 years ago or 25 years ago and tell me that so I can put it in an archive of historical, historical facts. For me, the question is, so how did you get through that? What, tell me what the moments of choice and decision were. Um, tell me about the, 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 how you feel when you look back at that. And so when you come to this storytelling medium, it's not just about the archival. It's about how you then communicate those stories to the wider world. And today we have this plethora of amazing technologies that we can use and, and uh, to the benefit of telling these stories in new and creative ways. So for example, now you don't just say, tell me the story of what it was like to be at Maidanic death camp. And you say, well, you hear the survivors say, I arrived there on the 13th of May, and then we were put into two lines and we went one way and the other way. Now what you do, you go to that place and you stand in that place with 360 degree cameras and you film the story in the place where it took place. Now you're transported not only back in time, but back in place. And you then encounter the individual who experienced that death, uh, deathly moment of their family in the place where it occurred. At that point, all of your senses are triggered. You're seeing, you're hearing, you're feeling the emotion of the individual returning to that place. And so what would have been a, a 2D flat story 
becomes not only 3D in a visual sense, but almost, if you like, a 4D experience because of the emotions and the visceral experience of, of seeing and feeling uh, what it would like be, have been like to be in that place. So, that, right. that's, so those are sort of the technologies that interest me in terms of how can we tell these stories in new and creative ways, not for the benefit of the technology, Ben, but actually for the benefit of the storyteller and mm -hmm. ultimately for the benefit of the, the listener and the viewer. And you, you talk about how it can trigger such a visceral reaction for the viewer. I know, I know you educate all different levels of students, whether it's you know, grade school or college. I imagine you know, when you're, when you're dealing with such a heavy topic, you have to maybe have a different approach for somebody who's in grade school learning about this atrocity versus somebody who's in college. How do you tailor your initiatives and your education um, to younger versus older students? You know, in particular, I think of the Stronger Than Hate initiative that, that you've started at USC as well. How do you, how do you figure out what's right for um, your audience, basically? Yeah, I came to the USC Show Foundation over a decade ago, and on my first day, I sort of made this pronouncement. Uh, at the time, the, sh the testimonies were not available online. So I thought, okay, great. I am the new executive director. I will make a proclamation. Uh, the proclamation was that every inter uh, uh, device that was connected to the internet would be able to view these testimonies. And then we set to work. And a decade later, we're getting closer to that. Now, technically, it's very easy to do. We could upload the entire archive to YouTube and my proclamation would have been fulfilled within about three <laughs> months of uploading. Right. And then what would have happened? Nobody would have used it. Because actually, when it comes to the distribution of content online, it's not about putting the content online. It's to your very point, it's about reaching a particular audience. So an audience of grade school children in Radom, Poland, have a completely different need to grade school children in Los Angeles, California. A group of university students in Beijing, China, have a completely different set of um, things that they might be interested in, not only language, of course, but also content-wise, than university students in Buenos Aires. So as a global distribution organization, it then became about, well, who are our audiences? So we had to divide the globe into four different categories, researchers, educators, um, community, and organizations. And each of those audience, each of them have a platform that we built. And each of those platforms has sub-audiences. So within research, you have research scholars as well as students in higher education, and then that's divided by language and um, geography. So if you can imagine, what we've basically got is this enormous jigsaw puzzle by which we're taking these 55,000 life stories that have been given in 42 languages from 62 countries and said, okay, there's geographic relevance and there's linguistic relevance and then there's thematic relevance and the different types of entities, if I am the United Nations, I might want to use that for helping in peace building. If I am the University of up, Oxford, um, I might want to use that as a library resource. And if I am um, a, a high school in Los Angeles school district, I might want to be teaching about tolerance. And so each of those platforms 
um, is very highly um, segmented to be able to reach very specific audiences. As we talk about the distribution of the information, one of the, the things that comes to mind for me is the challenge in the wake of social media and the misinformation that you have to combat. Facebook for, for all too long was permitting Holocaust denial content as part of free speech. Recently in October 2020, they said they would no longer permit content that, quote, denies or distorts the Holocaust, end quote. But as has been reported by the markup in Forbes, there are still numerous well-known Holocaust denial groups that are active on the site. There's all kinds of content, unfortunately, that's still spreading misinformation on one of the biggest platforms. How do you go about combating misinformation on this huge platform it's hard enough as it is, but how, how does the calculus uh, become that much more complicated and how do you adjust for it when there's misinformation being spread at such an alarming rate? Yeah, you're right. So the internet provides two sets of opportunities. Uh, one of them is the one that you just referred to, which is those who want to provide misinformation can do so easily um, and it's very difficult to challenge it. The second opportunity is that you can put content into that same domain um, and provide reliable sources. So the first thing is um, making sure that the sources that you have um, are easily accessible and can be uh, found you know, through search and other ways. Um, because many, many of the instances where individuals are finding, say for example, Holocaust denial material is actually through innocent searches. They just search you know, Holocaust Auschwitz or something. And then lo and behold, they find themselves with a mixture of sources. So one of the responsibilities of an organization like ours and other organizations that have reliable sources is to make sure that our SEO is working very well um, yeah. so that um, our search engine optimization that is, is working well because we want to be among those first um, search results. Um, and we want to be beating off the competition, particularly if that competition happens to be um, denying the facticity of the Holocaust and or other genocides. That's the first thing, that's our responsibility. Secondly, in our responsibility is making sure that we have and are connected to a community of people that respond to this kind of denial um, and pernicious material um, by you know, providing um, alternatives for them and, and helping those who might come across that material to see that there are alternatives. The third thing is to work with the social media organizations themselves and actually, um, you know, we are working directly with Facebook since they have uh, made this more recent announcement to say, okay, how can we help your users to find material and how can we work together so that when they come onto uh, Facebook, not only, um, you know, with their new policies, do they maybe not encounter as much material as they did before, but when they do um, do those searches that they find material is helpful to that community. And so working with the organizations that run the channels is a part of what we do. It is comforting to hear that 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 those that there are methods of uh, of you know attacking the misinformation and and getting your your SEO such that you are among you and other reliable sources are among the top results. That is that is really comforting to hear. I think uh, you know anybody who's contributing to the Show Foundation can recognize the good work you're doing. I'm I'm curious, you know, as somebody who's leading the operation. How do you how do you define success? How do you measure success? What does to the extent there is a quote return on investment? What are you looking for? Because you're not a public company. You don't necessarily have shareholders in the same way they do. But you have a board. You have people who contribute and expect, you know, to see to see awesome work in the newsletter that you send out. 
how do you how do you as the leader of the operation evaluate are we successful do we need more time on this initiative or it's it's not working we got to go in a different direction yeah so there's lots of ways of measuring success um when you're the executive director that is the ceo of an organization unfortunately no matter what the humanitarian mission is that you have bottom line success is are we financially able to succeed um, because without without actually the funding we can't actually fulfill our mission so um, a large part of my time is spent thinking about that uh, what i love about fundraising ben and it sounds strange that anybody would love fundraising <laughs> is if you can communicate to an individual who has the resources to support your organization the benefit of the mission the complexity of delivering the mission sometimes um, the strategy that goes with delivering that particular program as a part of the mission um, you are then not only it's not about acquiring money it's about building a relationship with an individual who believes in the same values and the same mission that you do and that's why i love fundraising because i get to work with the most amazing people who share the same vision and I find, by the way, as soon as I find somebody who doesn't share that vision or share that same sense of um, um, the word of it, anticipation around the success of that mission, um, it's not that I don't, I don't necessarily like or dislike the individual. I just say, thank you very much. It's lovely. We'll move on. Please follow our progress. And I'm going to make those relationships where we can be most successful. So that's one thing is you, you've got to be financially successful. Yep. But for me, what really... Um, what really gets me up in the morning is knowing that the people who gave their testimonies to this archive um, did so not only to document their past, but because they truly believe that their story could inspire people to make the world a better place. And it sounds so cliched, but it's not, I promise you. I have a job that deals with some of the worst horrors of humanity, and yet I wake up with hope every morning because I see more and more young people using our education programs, because I see the number of views on our YouTube channel going up, which means people are interested in listening to those stories. I see the responses of teachers who want to just impart to their young people who are in their classrooms values that will make the world in which we live safer for the future. I see leaders who come and say, you know, those, those stories have made me think about leadership in different ways and I, I'm inspired in order to be courageous around the decisions I make. I see people making better decisions in their own lives or, for, or in organizations that help others. All of that for me is what uh, is how I measure this, and um, we do keep statistics, and we are very happy to see the numbers of people using our content going up very sharply. We had 180 million minutes of testimony viewed this year. We reached over 20 million people directly, and over a billion, actually over three billion, reach in terms of our communication strategy. Um, those numbers matter because they say that you are, you know, reaching your audience, but more importantly, are the individual letters that we will receive that will say, thank you uh, for sharing that story with me. I am going to make a different career decision or I'm going to make a different choice about um, what I do in school or it's helped me to understand the world in which I live. And for me, that's success. I think that engagement is a real testament to you and your team for 
creating that kind of content and then figuring out the right mode of distribution. I want to, before we wrap up with fun rapid fire questions, I want you to, to switch roles for a moment and put your interviewer hat on and give us some insight into how you draw out such compelling testimony from survivors. That can be a very hard thing to do. It's a traumatic experience and you, you find a way to, to really get people to open up. You find a way to disarm people and get them to share very intimate, very powerful details about their lives. And I've been fortunate to see you in action. And for people who, uh, who are curious, how do, you, how do you prepare for those moments, for those interviews? And once you're in them, what does that look like? Well, I have, I have one of the best jobs in the world, Ben, because not only do I get to run an organization, but I get to meet some of the most amazing human beings you can possibly imagine. People who have been through the worst experiences and have come through and have the most compelling stories to tell that can really shed light on what it means to be human and live in the world. For me, uh, going into those interviews, I always treat them with extreme um, care and seriousness. Um, those individuals will be giving that interview once and they might be revealing secrets to me that they have never told anyone else. And they are, there's a, they are enormous moments of courage for them to be able to sit in front of that camera and talk directly and in the public domain about the things that have been most traumatizing in their lives. So also, secondly, then it comes with um, deep respect uh, for that courage and for all they're about to share. It's also important to go into the interview uh, knowledgeable about them and uh, what they went through using, at this point in my life, you know, 20, 30 years of experience um, knowing the history of genocide, but also the specific um, experience that they might have gone through and taking the time and trouble to learn about that in advance and be prepared. Um, third thing is, um, this interview is not about me as the interviewer, it's about the interviewee. And so not getting in emotionally entangled in the story, but actually being a dispassionate, you're almost like a surgeon in a way, in, a, in a, uh, an operating room. You've got to be sufficiently distant from the patient. You've got to be sufficiently distant from the story to enable them to tell this and for them to be able to trust you, not because you're emotional with them, but in fact, because you're dispassionate and because you have enough distance to be able to elucidate, for them to, to elicit um, what they want to elucidate. And so that's how I go about that. Um, and I have to tell you that uh, I am very grateful um, to all the people that I have interviewed over the years, which is many, many at this point, uh, for their willingness and their trust in me to share those stories. Um, of more recent ones, this year during COVID, I had spent eight hours interviewing 100-year-old Ben Ferenc, uh, who was is the last surviving uh, prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials from 1946-7. Uh, ben was 27 years old when he walked into that courtroom having graduated Harvard Law. He had never tried a case in his life and he had 22 Nazis sitting on the bench in front of him who had killed, were responsible for the deaths of 1.5 million people. It was the biggest murder trial in history. Um, and I tell you, Ben, to spend eight hours with that gentleman and to learn about that was one of the most uh, interesting and revealing interviews that I have ever done. And I feel very honored to have participated and had uh, a chance to uh, make sure that that's documented for history. That's incredible. And the fact that you were able to pull it off in the middle of a pandemic is, is that much more incredible. Um, we'll wrap up now with, with a little bit of uh, rapid fire questions. Firstly... What's an app that you can't live without? 
Well, that's a great question. I have so many apps, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> if you'd have asked me six months ago, I would have said the Delta app because I traveled virtually every week and I was booking flights and changing flights. And I have to say that I'm very uh, impressed with the way in which Delta developed their app and I used it all the time. I have not opened it since March of 2020. <laughs> and so that one's gone by the board. Um, in the pandemic, Scrabble became very important because it meant that I could play remotely with my kids. But then when they started beating me too much, then I gave up on that. Um, and I guess I use Apple News more than I should. I'm a little addicted to it, honestly. Who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Well, I'm not sure that my life is worthy of a movie, first of all. Uh, if it was, it'd have to be somebody with a decent British accent. So I would say um, Cumberbatch, probably. All right. Some kind of age, vintage, and he'd have to put on a rough Midlands accent to get by, but I think <laughs> he could manage that. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Um, the art of kindness. Where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Um, I, this is going to sound a little uh, cliched, but it's got to be Machu Picchu, I think. But I've been to so many places that are the most miserable places on earth because of what happened there. I am very familiar with, you know, places of the darkest uh, parts of humanity. I feel like I want to go to a few places that will just inspire me, um, whether it's the beauty or the creativity or the magic of uh, what human beings can do. And Machu Picchu seems to be up there on the list. What's a song that you like to jam to right now? We have a Spotify playlist where we collect a recommendation from each of our guests. So if you'd like to contribute to that, what's a song that you're jamming to at the moment? Well, um, I've been jamming to Coldplay for about 20 years and it doesn't seem <laughs> off. Um, my, my playlist um, is sort of about 80% pop, <laughs> mainly because I'm not very good at loading things up and don't have many playlists anyway. I would say, what's the one with Jerusalem bells are ringing? Viva la vida. Thank you. There we go. And lastly, where can people find your work and keep up with you on social media? You can find me at SFI, that's Shoah Foundation Institute, sfi.usc.edu. As for social media, I, um, I deactivated all my accounts when I felt that social media was becoming too intrusive in my life. And I can tell you 15 months on, it was the best decision I ever made. I am involved in digital technology. I am most interested in using digital channels, including digital social media to get my message over. But personally, don't go near it. All right, good for you. I'm envious. Um, fantastic. If anybody would like to check out the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at HTYDpod. Steven, thank you so much. This was really fun and very insightful. Thank you, Ben. Great to be on.